Welcome to Ordain and Establish, a podcast of lectures and discussions produced by the Project on Constitutional Originalism and the Catholic Intellectual Tradition at the Catholic University of America's Columbus School of Law. To learn more, visit our website at cit.catholic.edu. Good morning, I'm Pete Peterson, the very grateful dean of Pepperdine University's Graduate School of Public Policy, and it's a delight to welcome you back to the second day of our Making Men Moral Conference. I do believe that I, I, I feel it's incumbent upon me to begin by apologizing for the performance of my state's governor, Gavin Newsom, last night uh, in the debate. I don't know if any of you caught that, but one of the takeaways that I'm seeing uh, go viral in the media was the display by Governor DeSantis of a so-called San Francisco fecal map, which (laughs) there is some enterprising young uh, upstart company that has covered the amount of feces that's being cleaned up around San Francisco. And it struck me that that might be the idea for a new book cover. The next, (laughs) the next publishing of Making Men Moral might feature that map because in some ways, and I, and I do think this is actually has, has quite a bit of relevance to today's conversation, um, what COVID brought, apart, uh, brought about in many ways, and I think we're still dealing with the ramifications of it, is a renewed understanding that it is the United States of America And in that, how states responded through public policy to COVID and a number of other things, I think it was a a civics lesson in many ways to Americans in understanding that uh, public policy is not just generated here in Washington, D.C., but also at the state level. And, And those policies generated by states and even municipalities can have real ramifications for the questions that Robbie has raised in Making Men Moral. Uh, And obviously, we're going to be discussing some of those things in those introductory panels today. I also think it's important, and some might be wondering why a graduate school of public policy, uh, especially one based in Malibu, California, might have interest in these discussions. Uh, It is true that of all the academic disciplines, especially those in the social sciences, the field of public policy and public policy education is probably the most secularized and the most technocratic of all the disciplines. Of the 240 graduate policy programs in the United States, less than a handful are based at Christian colleges and universities. One of those, of course, is at Pepperdine. And taking a deeper sense, a deeper look at questions of politics and policy is certainly one of the unique approaches that we take at Pepperdine. Last year, we celebrated our 25th anniversary as a policy school, and it took me to go back to uh, many of our founding uh, quotations and plans that were generated at the start of our school back in 1997. And I thought, based on yesterday's conversations and uh, the ones that I, I know that we're going to have today, I wanted to draw out one quotation uh, from the founding itself an event that was conducted in February of 1997. And one of our founding faculty um, was the late great historian of California, Kevin Starr. 
Starr said this in describing the launch of the policy school at Pepperdine. A renewal of public policy at Pepperdine, in other words, without being overly self-conscious about it, can conduct itself in investigations and engage in its debates solidly anchored in a philosophy that sees individuals as free moral agents, not as victims in some academic scenario, that sees the American experiments proceeding directly from the best imperatives of our Western, now global, civilization, that sees a flourishing economy and an efficient government in terms of the final goal of these operations, which is to say the enhancement of individual human lives in both their use and enjoyment of this world and their struggle for higher meaning, unquote. I think we've kept our commitment to that founding quotation by Dr. Star. And in fact, I think what's so important about this conversation is that it draws our attention not just to public policy as a field, but what is that higher goal of public policy? What are we doing this for? Is it simply for the, the simple quantitative analysis of, of cost-benefit or doing multiple regressions? Or is it for this sense of human flourishing that's really what public policy should be about. And I know that I share this not only from my perch in Malibu, California, but obviously here at AEI and our friends at Catholic University and EPPC. It is about drawing our attention to the foundational reasons we do this work in public policy and law. And that's what, again, makes me so encouraged to be a part of events like this and to celebrate the work of Dr. George. Without further ado, I do want to call up our first panel that uh, is going to be led by Tim Carney and uh, really the beginning of a series of great conversations for the day. Thanks so much for being here and to our audience that uh, is watching remotely. Uh, again, there will be opportunities to engage in the Q&A that, uh, that follows each of the panels. Thanks very much. I'm Alexandra DeSanctis. I'm a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to serve as the moderator for this panel this morning. Our topic is civil society and subsidiarity, challenges to making men moral. I'll start by briefly introducing each of our panelists. Uh, each will offer his own brief remarks, and then we'll have a, a broader discussion and time for Q&A. So directly to my right is Reverend Eugene F. Rivers III. He's a former Somerville gang member from Philadelphia. He was educated at Harvard, where he studied philosophy and the history of science. He was the subject of a Newsweek cover story in 1998 and was prominently featured in a second cover story on the AIDS crisis in Africa two years later. Gustav Niebuhr in the New York Times identified Reverend Rivers as the Bush administration's point man on faith-based and community service. He's the founder and director of the Seymour Institute for Black Church and Policy Studies and is a widely published writer and community activist who has lectured internationally. He also advised both Bush administrations and the Clinton administration on their faith-based initiatives and in the foreign policy arena regarding the AIDS crisis in Africa. He has provided commentary for numerous television programs, and he lives and works among the poor in inner-city Boston with his wife, Dr. Jacqueline C. Rivers. Ryan Streeter is executive director of the Civitas Institute at the University of Texas at Austin. 
Until recently, he was the Director of Domestic Policy Studies at AEI. He served as a policy advisor to a U.S. president, a governor, and a mayor, and a fellow at other think tanks such as the Legatum Institute in London and the Hudson Institute here in D.C. He's the author of more than 150 articles and studies, has written and edited five books, and is a frequent guest on news shows. He also has a Ph.D. in political philosophy from Emory University. And finally, we have Tim Carney, who is a senior fellow at AEI and senior columnist at the Washington Examiner. He's the author of four books, most recently Alienated America, and also a forthcoming book that he'll tell us about on today's panel. He's written for several publications, including uh, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, many others, uh, frequent contributor to many news shows. He and his wife, Katie, are raising six children here in the D.C. area. And on a personal note, I, I first got to know Tim on a trip to Rome, uh, where he spent the entire time saying that all my cultural references made him feel old. So I'll let our, our panelists take it away. Uh, so you, you are doing questions? or am uh, just going to start about 10 minutes or so. Okay, 10 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm supposed to start? Yes, please. Okay. Um, first, I want to uh, uh, give thanks. I'm a Pentecostal. Right, right. So I think I give thanks to God for everything. Right. So um, I want to thank, uh, I've got two very special individuals here who are largely responsible for why I'm sitting in this chair. I want to uh, thank uh, Professor George, uh, Robbie, uh, who uh, is sort of an amazing figure in that. Notice he, um, he has a, well, he's got a brilliant mind, obviously, and, you know, making men moral and, you know, uh, kicking around all the liberals uh, very competently, right? You know, so I'm not, that's actually very, very impressive, right? I, um, he is, as a conservative, it's interesting, as a conservative, he's been one of the few that actually talks to black people. I th- you're also supposed to laugh at that. Right. <laughs> right. No, this is, this is actually quite significant because this entire discussion of making men moral. You see, I'm a pastor, so I'm in the making men moral business. I do that seven days a week, right? And I am just profoundly thankful to him for his integrity, because he has engaged a whole range of issues that 90% of your colleagues have not engaged. And this is actually very important. Uh, um, one of the things that um, uh, I pointed out, and I've got another person to thank. One of the things that's very interesting about the black church, uh, because you know, I'm a son of the church, and I simply want to say to my conservative friends here, if you are not engaging the black church in any of your public policy discussion, you're not even in the game. You're one of those individuals who don't know he doesn't know. And I'll, I'll cite one example. Um, I remember once uh, looking at the history of the civil rights movement, I said to myself, okay, I've got to go find out what the white geniuses are doing or where they were when King emerges in 54, 55. And I said, I wonder if the American Political Science Review, any of the quarterly editions starting in 1949, anyone, did anyone anticipate the emergence of this extraordinary movement that begins in some, uh, Montgomery? Really? 
So there's going to be this major movement that's going to have enormous moral, philosophic, and political con- you know, consequences, right? And I want to see... And, and so uh, I went back and I glanced at the National Review. So, you know, I'm actually a, a fan of uh, Buckley, right? And I said, wow, oh, Bill Buckley, he missed it too, right? Professor George, I want to salute him because... He was one of the few people, and, I, and I've got another piece to this, this uh, narrative, who was willing to engage and brought a level of integrity and actually uh, would talk to black people, right? And, and, and when I say that, I don't want anybody to get upset. My point being, making this topic, you know, the title of his book, is going to require that the conservatives develop an A-game, which they're not currently in possession of, to engage what is going on in the cities. And ladies and gentlemen, we may run, but we're not going to hide. It's a major challenge, and I want to commend Professor George. Uh, I'd get together with him. We'd go into the anywhere, and he was always available. I mean, he's got all the frills and bells and whistles and Harvard and Oxford and all that, right? But he was never above being available as a human, as a scholar, as intellectual, a, a fancy guy that'll uh, slap Rawls and, 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 and all the liberals around. Actually, you know, impressively, right? I mean, so I, you read that, and it's, it's, an, it's an important book. But the country is in the middle of a crisis, uh, The conservatives are not bringing anything to the game in an original way, right? And I want to salute Professor George. And he's giving me a look like, calm it down now, Gina. You don't want to upset these people, get these white people too upset, right? So he just gave me the look, right? So I'm going to dial that down for you folk that are are put off that I actually would have an independent thought about how to think about you folks, right? Right. All right, so uh, you dial it down, breathe in, breathe out. Right. Uh, and now the second person I have to acknowledge and, uh, I'll, you know, I'll make this quick is uh, the person that introduced me to Professor George. Uh, Professor John J. DiUlio, uh is another major factor. And, and, and this is actually relevant. John J. DiUlio in the mid 90s wrote a absolutely notorious piece in what was then the Weekly Standard called The Coming of the Super Predators. And boy, he caught hell from the liberals. Oh, they just went maniacs. And so I read the piece. I'm in Boston doing our ministry work in the hood, right? So I see the piece, and I read the thing. I say, my man got this right. That's exactly what's happening. We have an entire generation of young children that are not being raised, right? Uh, No one is making their lives moral, right? It's exactly what is not happening. Uh, And... I, I reached out to him. I said, look, some Professor, do you, you don't know me. I don't know you. We're both, we have this one thing in common. We're from Philly. And I'm a refugee from Philadelphia. And uh, I said, I want to begin a dialogue with you because you understand and had the courage to articulate what was the nature of the crisis in the inner cities as a result, right? Uh, the faith-based initiative uh, was launched uh, George, yeah, actually Clinton was beginning to play with it because uh, uh, th- th- they understood that they couldn't let conservatives steal the God card. That was sort of the line they used, right? And so 
I'm very thankful, I think, that as a result of what Professor George has done in elevating the level of discourse around the question, how, in fact, do we advance a philosophic, normative, a policy prescriptive agenda that moves beyond cliches and the partisan stupidity, which now passes as uh, politics or political discourse. So, all right, and, I, and, and for all of you who've been offended, please pray for me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Take it away. Okay, thanks. Well, uh, it's great to be here, um, and congratulations, Robbie, on this on this event, which is is terrific, and it's just an honor to be invited to join all of you. Um, <clears throat> I'm I'm also very grateful, and I'd like to start by giving thanks to. I'm an Anglican, but we also we also give thanks. It sometimes takes us longer, and there's lots of repetition. No, no, no you know. that's okay. That's yeah, um, uh, but They're but all but, but with in Africa. <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah, exactly. That's true. Um, but it's. Uh, it is good to be in this room with so many people that, you know, when I look around, I, I realize how, um, how grateful I am for the people who have shaped my own intellectual, spiritual, moral journey. Um, lots of people in this room, my AEI colleagues that I've learned a lot from. Um, it's been great. I, you know, I'm, I'm now at an institute at the University of Texas, inspired in no small part because of the work that you've done, Robbie. Um, I've been a partner in crime with my friend Pete Peterson for a number of years on the issues that we're talking about today. I've, I've learned continuously from my friend and colleague, or former AEI colleague, Tim, Tim Carney. Um, when I look around the room, I, I think probably the person I've actually known the longest, or at least I met the, the, the most number of years ago, is you. Um, and it was in a church basement in Indianapolis, Indiana, about a year after yeah. that Newsweek cover. Right. Um, okay. yeah. When I had uh, just uh, taken a job with Steve Goldsmith. Right. And um, yeah, back in those back, back in, in those day. days. Back in the yeah. day, Steve Goldsmith. And um, right. and that began a, a journey of looking at these questions of of subsidiarity and the importance of devolution and putting um, decision making as close as you can to the people whose um, services you're supposed to be providing to. Right. Right. And um, and kind of never really emerged from that. I um, I was I, I went from from Goldsmith's office to the Hudson Institute where we were working on these issues, kind of the, the post welfare reform days and all those interesting kind of evaluations that we were doing. And then <clears throat> George Bush gets elected president, and I get this call from John Dulio's deputy in the White House saying, "Hey, we're trying to staff up with with uh, with Republicans or center right people who know something about uh, urban policy and issues and poverty and inequality, and it's kind of a small room." <laughs> so. Uh, would you like to come out and join the, the team? And I hadn't donated a dime or done anything on the campaign, but I asked my <laughs> wife if she thought we should move to Washington and work in the White House, and so there we did. And had many opportunities to, to yeah. be involved with you and yeah. you, John, and, and, and all the rest of it. Um, and so it, that, that, began, that, that began the process of my many indiscriminately just saying yes to opportunities in, in a career that's looked a little bit like professional ADHD <laughs> in all the different places that, where I've gone. Um, but there has been this this thread um, throughout a lot of my work about the importance of local communities, about the importance of um, sovereignty at the at the at the household and neighborhood level, and its implications for policy, and its and, and the implications of moral formation on how we think about policy development. And so it's really great to to be here in this and amidst this conversation today. Um, we didn't share our remarks with each other, so I was trying to think about some things I would say that wouldn't wouldn't step on Tim's toes and 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 not 
uh, invade Dr. Rivers' space, but um, what I um, thought I would focus on are just two, two things that have kind of emerged from some of the work that I and my colleagues have done. And a lot of that was, most of, all of it was done here at AEI using um, survey work that we've been doing over a number of years here through the Survey Center on American Life that my colleague Dan Cox runs. And the, the, they, they focus on the, um, the, first, the first issue I wanted to talk about is just the importance of the types of engagements that people have in their communities and what that, what that actually uh, does to them and the effect it has on them. And then secondly, I just wanted to touch, and I'll do this all very briefly, just on the types of places that we actually do inhabit, the actual physical neighborhoods and environments that we live in. So to the first uh, point, we all know um, that social capital is very important. We know that it's created at the household level through good, meaningful relationships at home. We also know that involvement in your community has all kinds of positive benefits. This has been studied for decades now. Um, one of the things that emerged from our research that hasn't gotten as much attention, which is why I thought I'd focus on it now, is the difference between being sort of socially engaged in your community and being civically engaged in your community. And civically engaged uh, would encompass being involved in a house of worship or in a congregation. And what we found when we carve up people into four categories, people who are highly civic and highly social, and, and highly social would be a essentially defined as people that are regularly in touch with friends and who have a lot of friends. And you can plot these this along a scale. And, and you look at the people that aren't very civically engaged, um, but who are highly social, and people who are civically engaged but not very social, that would be like your um, condo association president, you know, the person that goes around, doesn't have any friends and no one likes them, but they're really engaged. And, they, they, um, and, the, and then you have people that are, are not social and not, not civic. And when we look at those groups of people across a whole bunch of different questions, and, and we, we look at how they line up on the UCLA loneliness index, um, you find that, that, as you would expect, people that don't have a lot of friends and don't talk with people and are not engaged in their communities are pretty lonely and pretty miserable. Um, and it shows up in almost every type of question about social, isola social isolation that you can ask. Um, but when you look at the people who are very civic but not social or very social and not civic, they're actually quite similar in where they show up on the loneliness index. They're quite similar in terms of how they um, answer the trust questions. Do you think people can mostly be trusted or you can't be too careful? All these kind of survey questions. But it's when you get to that, that level of where people are really engaged and they're also social that you see these outsized effects. And so what uh, just a very sort of common sense conclusion from, from that survey research is that um, having a lot of friends and being really involved just uh, in an informal social way doesn't have the same effect on you as it does when you're actually pouring into someone else's life in some concrete way, whether it's through your house of worship or whether it's through some, some sort of organization uh, in, in your community that's actually trying to achieve some good. And uh, we used to talk about this a lot. Um, part of the reason we started this survey research about five or six years ago is because we weren't talking about these things very much anymore. And a lot of public opinion research had kind of steered away from some of these issues. And so I think this is, a, this is an issue that definitely would require more, more research, but it's something that we found consistently in the number of national surveys that we have conducted, that when you um, have people engaged, not just with their friends, but, but with, with meaningful institutions of civil society, it has has a profound effect on them. The second thing that I wanted to draw attention to is just the neighborhood itself. When, uh, when Richard John Newhouse and Peter Berger wrote their book, To Empower People, they had four mediating structures in there. And those of us at AEI and AEI published that, that version in the 80s. Uh, we, we've talked about this a lot. My colleagues here have written about it a lot. I've, I've focused on it too. Since that time, 
the first three mediating structures, the family, the voluntary association, and, and the congregation have gotten a lot of social science, economic, and other research devoted to them. The fourth one, the neighborhood, not as much. And the neighborhood was their, their fourth mediating structure that they focused on very wisely and presciently, I think. And so when we took a look at that, just in terms of the proximity that people are to those, those places where you are when you're not at home and when you're not at work, when you're not at home and when you're not at school, whether it's the park, whether it's the church, whether it's the voluntary association, the cafe, wh whatever it is, we found that when people are proximate to, um, if we list six types of neighborhood amenities that people can be involved in, we find out, we plot the, the people that are kind of highly you know, in, engaged in their community that way, they, they have access to you five to ten minutes away from four to six of those things versus those people that are, that are only close to one to two of those things. And you look at high, low, and, and moderate amenity neighborhoods, uh, we find, perhaps unsurprisingly, but, but something that hasn't been, been looked at a whole lot, that when people are just out and about in their communities, uh, they have higher trust levels. Uh, they have a higher estimation of their community. You can live in the same community, and if you don't frequent the things that are available to you around there, you'll have a lower estimation of, of the quality of the place that it is to, to live in. People are more likely to say yes when asked to volunteer. So I think there, there are implications for all of us uh, when it comes to, especially those of us who care about policymaking, at the uh, metro and urban uh, level to think about what that actually means. When we're talking about uh, development, we're talking about housing affordability, when we're talking about the, the nature of our neighborhoods, it's not just enough to provide affordable housing, although that's really important in, in today's metro markets where it's gotten so unaffordable. We need affordable neighborhoods that, that produce these goods in people's lives, and I don't think we've probably thought enough about that. Happy to talk more about that when we get to the Q&A, but I'll turn it over to my colleague, Tim. Thank you. So after yesterday, I was tempted to go and try to get my alma mater uh, tie, which would have been black and orange, which, of course, is uh, St. John's <laughs> College in Annapolis, Maryland. I think yesterday I realized in the morning that there, the only two people on stage this weekend who couldn't get into Princeton were me and Robbie George. So. <laughs> At St. John's, we started, every St. John's freshman starts by reading the Iliad. And a lot of 18-year-old boys like me see, think that like, that's got to be the end of our education, right? Because Achilles is the beginning and end of virtue. And this very sort of individualistic idea of virtue is a very common idea of what morality is in America today. That it's, I mean, we, even the way we conservatives talk, we are moral agents. We have free will, autonomy in that sense of ruling the self is an idea of morality. Um, but I, I think it's, it's exactly what we need to push back on today. And this morning, I hope we're going to start with it, that making men moral happens on the community level. And that's a, supposed to be a contrast to both the individual level and the national level. Um, moral making happens on the local level. Here I think of a, the first time I went into a coffee shop that was owned and run by millennials. And on the wall was a list of rules, and then there was like tacked onto it a, a set of like codicil to the rules. And the one rule was, if you are only two people, do not sit at a four-top table. You have to be at least three, a group of three, if you're going to sit at a four-top table. And then there were some tables that were big and could fit six, and who was allowed to sit there? If you're alone and you want to use the Internet, you have to buy coffee. And if you want to use the Internet for more than 45 minutes, you also have to buy food. And then it was tacked on there, unless you're in a study group. And it was absolutely ridiculous. And as I looked at this, I, I started thinking, okay, you know what? Each one of these rules correlates with something that makes sense, that you shouldn't go into a coffee shop, just use their internet, and not give them money, that it's rude to take up a big table if you're sitting by yourself. 
But as I started to write about how emblematic this was of, of millennials to legislate everything, I started to run out of my 45 <laughs> minutes of free internet for my cup of coffee. So I thought, what's the cheapest bit of food I could buy to buy myself a little more? This is what happens when you legislate. Once you shift something from being a norm and a custom and an expectation to being a rule, then people try to negotiate and, and haggle around the edges. One of the stories my friend Megan McArdle tells that's analogous is of this private school where um, you're supposed to pick up your kids by 315 because otherwise you're burdening the staff with looking after kids and yeah they have aftercare but if you didn't pay for aftercare you should pick up the kids at 315 so they started saying for every 15 minutes you're late after 315 we're going to charge you $50 more parents started showing up late because if they could, they were like, wow, I can buy another 15 minutes for, for this? <laughs> that when it was just guilt for burdening the staff, you were more likely to hustle back. When No, I paid for that. So when we legislate stuff, when we make it explicit, when we throw it into commerce, people treat other people a little less human. So this is why moral making has to happen on the moral level. We were talking last night about... Um, Efforts to combat fraud and abuse in welfare systems. And in Kansas, I remember a, a really bad conservative habit is really worrying that the, the undeserving poor are, are doing something they shouldn't with their welfare money. And there was something, make sure that you don't spend any of your welfare check at amusement parks. And make sure we give drug tests monthly to, you know, uh, recipients of, of WIC or whatever. And so the, you're, you're forcing people to do these drug tests, in a, you're, you're demeaning them, while the, the charity that's done on a local level, if you go to the, what I, one of the things I write about in Alienated America is the, the church welfare system in uh, the, the Mormon church, and that you can go, everybody sacrifices a meal once a week, every family. The money they would have spent on that, they donate. So there's something called the Bishop's Storehouse, which is a right. supermarket with no prices and no cash registers. Right. And I talked to this one guy who, when he had lost his job, uh, he met with the sort of the, the guy in the local congregation who was in charge of this. And the guy said, all right, so what do you already have in your, your cupboard? We, you've got that. You're covered for a week. Um, and then week two, you've got a little bit of savings. And then the guy said, so week three, I, you know, if I don't have a job by then, I'm going to have to go to the bishop's storehouse. He goes, no, that's when you sell your fishing boat. Because like this isn't some like speedboat thing. This is my family and I. We go out fishing. This is like our main form of recreation, especially if we're not going to take vacation this summer. And the the uh, guy from the congregation said, "You're going to make people give up their meals so that you can own a fishing boat. If you don't have a job in two weeks and you need money, you sell the fishing boat. If you run out of money after selling the fishing boat, then you come into the bishop's storehouse. That was a human level sort of accountability, much better than what's done on the state level. So that sort of moral making has to happen on the local level. The more rules you have, there was a study by MIT uh, Journal of Economics. These questions, do you generally find other people trustworthy, et cetera? Internationally, they found that places with more regulations had lower level of trust. I think the causality certainly goes both ways. More regulations makes us distrust people more, and the more we distrust people, the more we demand actual uh, regulations. So I think we're probably becoming a less moral country because we, our community connections are collapsing. This is Robert Putnam wrote about it 25 years ago in Bowling Alone, and it's, uh, it's still true today. Uh, Putnam 
dedicated only one chapter in Bowling Alone to churches in which he noted, oh, and 50% of all civic activity originates in the church. I thought that should have been half of Bowling Alone then. But he did then write a follow-up book with a a Mormon, David Campbell from Notre Dame, um, American Grace. And in there they said that church-going people um, are give more to charity, including even if you took out all church charity, they still give more to charity. Uh, church-going men are less likely uh, to be unfaithful or, or commit domestic violence. Even in some of the local, after some of the horrible uh, mass shootings, I've looked up um, just gun ownership, gun um, culture, gun worship. People who really find their identity in their guns are people who are less likely to go to church. So the way I put it is church is the single most important institution of civil society in America for making men moral. And with apologies, I don't think it's the sermons that do most of the work. I think it's the ministry. I mean, in some churches, maybe it is the the sermons that that make men moral. Um, But it's, I say not the sermons, but the ministries. And ministries is a funny word. Um, As a Catholic, we don't really use that term. And when I've visited some um, mega churches, everything is a ministry. It started off, it was like, you know, the the ministry for taking care of orphans. I thought that was great. The ministry, the youth ministry, I was like, is this just a youth group? And then it was the the ultimate Frisbee ministry. But I'm not knocking the ultimate Frisbee ministry. I think all of these things are what make men moral. They are what expose us to other people, put us in, engage in some common undertaking and that are aimed towards a higher good, some higher than others. And it, um, it forces us to be moral. And this is again, where conservatives need to wrestle with, uh, agency and free will. Um, Achilles, the 18 year old me thought it's not moral unless you sort of sit in a room like Descartes and you think, what should I do? And you choose the right thing. The idea that peer pressure and example pushing you towards doing the right thing is morality is something that I think is at odds with some of the modern mind and something we need to regain. Um, Just uh, two more stories. One was, uh, and we talked about this yesterday a little, if you've ever belonged to something, say a neighborhood pool, there's always somebody who starts walking towards you with that look in your eyes, and you know that you are going to be made to volunteer. You, You know that this person is... And so I, this happened to me in my old parish in Maryland. A guy uh, came walking towards me after Mass. And usually I'm the guy who socializes a ton after Mass. And the pastor has to get my whole family out of the narthex because the 1030 Mass is coming in. But this one time, Michael, the, uh, the athletic director at the parish, started coming at me. And I knew what was going on. It's like, Katie, we got to go. Michael grabs me. I said, Tim, I see Meg is signed up for basketball. I said, yeah. He says, we've got enough girls from this parish that we can have a parish basketball team in the county rec league. I said, that's great. You know, just let me know. I'll, I'll make sure she gets to practice. Tim, we need a coach. And I said, I've got some recommendations. I'll, I'll email you on Monday. Tim, I was hoping you could be the coach. And at this point, I was writing my book, and uh, it was Alienated American. Uh, he said, I said, I can't. I'm too busy. He said, oh, something wrong. I said, well, no, I'm writing a book. He said, what's the book about? He said, it's about the importance of local community. <laughs> <coaches>. <laughs> So I, am a, I was a kindergarten girls basketball coach. Um, and this is what, and um, again, if you have sort of a, uh, if an opus day understanding of morality, you'll understand that self-mortification of coaching kindergarten girls basketball um, can make you better. And 
But in general, and this allows me to mention my, my next book, um, Family Unfriendly, which is, I think, one of the biggest results of the collapse of local communities, the collapse of marriage and family formation, that people get married and have kids because they see other people do it and that it's possible, even if not easy. It's because when more people are, when you belong to something, that's the social support that you need to raise kids. And that ultimately, it's one of the best things for making us moral. As long as you accept my definition of morality, that doing the right things for um, sometimes subpar reasons is, is, uh, is part of being moral. Jesus said to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. I wake up in the morning and there are hungry, naked people in my house. <laughs> They're right there. It's so easy to do it. This is what marriage and parenthood do. This is, and that's a just concentrated form of what community does. It forces you to face other people and gives you the peer pressure to rise up and do the right thing for whatever reason. So the collapse of community in America is a dangerous thing. If we're going to restore morality, it's going to be first restoring the strength of local communities. Thank Amen. You. Amen. 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 All right, well, I'll start us off with a, a question. Um, Ryan, I'm curious. You talk about you know, neighborhood proximity to parks, things like this. Um, what are we to make of the fact that much of America just isn't built like that? And as far as I can tell, the newest developments, the newer neighborhoods seem to be even worse in this regard. How do we revitalize this? Is there a way to, to kind of turn that around? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the, on, on the one hand, uh, what you say is correct. I mean, there, there's just a way in which kind of consumer preference drives people apart. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, on the other hand, there's been a lot of good development on, you know, in even new suburban development to make them approximate more what you would get in kind of a, 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 a more urban community where people can bike or walk or be close to or a short car ride. And, and what we found, too, is it doesn't matter if it's a car ride or a bike ride or walking. It's just it's really the time. It's like five to ten minutes from things is kind of what, what makes a, a difference in someone's life. So there's a lot you can do with that. And there, and there, there has been... A lot of positive development in that direction over the last 20 years compared to the previous 20, I think. Um, but you're right in that, you know, about a quarter of Americans only or less live in the kinds of high amenity neighborhoods that I was describing that produce these sorts of effects or at least allow those effects to be produced in people's lives. And so we need to do, do better at, at that. There's something that emerges from the survey data that I call the proximity paradox, which is when you ask people, you know, would you rather live in a large house on a large lot farther away from your neighbors and farther away from community amenities, on average, the, the average American will say yes to that. Um, changes a little bit when you carve it up by demographics, but the majority of Americans would prefer that life. Um, but then when you look at responses to questions about social trust, uh, your, how you rate your community, you know, as an excellent, good, fair, bad place right. to live, all those sorts of of things, uh, volunteerism levels, almost every kind of social good you can try to, to, to measure, and then you look at where the respondent actually lives, and the high amenity people actually are the, the positive crowd. So we, we actually have these really positive effects on our lives when we live in these kinds of neighborhoods, but our own personal preference is to not live in those kinds of neighborhoods, and that's always going to be a conflict. Um, I think you need to have an all, all, all of the above sort of strategy if you're, if you're a mayor or if you're uh, on the, 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 the planning council for the county or whatever. You, you can't force fit people into certain things. And the, 
the, uh, the debate over density or not density is kind of the, the wrong one. It really should be proximity. And you can, when you think about the, our neighborhoods in terms of proximity, it kind of gets rid of this question about you know, density versus low, low density. And it, it puts you more in this, this, this question of how easy is it for a mom with uh, three kids to actually get to these places where the kids can interact with others and where she can interact with others. And, uh, and you can do a lot with that. We're just not, we're just not doing a lot with it. But the, the broader point, if I can jump in there, is I mean, sometimes our preferences are wrong. <laughs> I mean, they make us less happy. Mm -hmm. If we, we think we want to live oh, further lots out. Of examples of that. And, and, yeah. and that's at the heart of sort of, you know, the, the making men moral question is it, let everybody do what they want. And then if people actually do, they end up less happy. Mm -hmm. And that's it's not a fun thing to say. It's sort of a paternalistic idea. Yeah. But. yeah. Question. Yeah. Uh, who's the we? Who's the we? Yes. It's the people who sit on stages in AEI and talk about what's right for America. No, but I, no, who's oh, we? Well, who well, 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 actually, that's true. <laughs> no, but but he's saying that the average American is more likely to want is will value proximity less. But then, when you survey who's happier, it's people who are more proximate. And so that I think that's a microcosm of the idea that when we're all left to our devices, we don't end up choosing what makes us maximally happy, which is upsetting to a rationalist person who thinks, oh, give everybody freedom, they're going to choose what makes them happy, and that, and that public policy isn't just about balancing rights, but actually guiding people towards better choices. Again, this grates on my sort of liberal self to say we need to help people, save people from themselves, but that's part of what your data suggests. Oh, okay, so um, you were correct. When you said we, uh, the we was where we are here, right? And how do we begin to address uh, the non-we that are in our cities? Uh, I'm from Philly, right? I'm originally from Philadelphia. I'm, a, you know, I'm from Philly. And uh, I talked to uh, Professor Dulio a lot about this because there are some developments that are taking place in terms of Cities being transformed. I, I had a conversation where basically uh, the developers in Philadelphia, right? Uh, the blacks will not be the we. Mm -hmm. Just to, you know, as the kids say, to keep it one hundred. This conversation <laughs> is very, you know, it's predictable, right? Uh, that we did not include that we, and so the question I want to ask, and this is a, a sort of a policy question. How do we begin to, you know, we're living happy lives. You're a happy guy. I mean, think you're writing books. I mean, we're all we're all very happy people, right? Uh, how do we begin to think as conservatives about some of the very substantial transformations that are generally ignored? For example, in Philly, uh, I, I, I'm doing some work in Philadelphia with Professor Diulio looking at violence in the cities, right? And uh, the big developers and the money guys say, look, uh, we're going to, this population is going to be removed from the city. They're just going to be, you know, uh, North Central Philadelphia is going to be transformed into Temple University. The outer rim suburbs will be these terrible places to live, right? So these poor people, and we're good Christians, right? So we actually care about these people, right? Now, that's, yes. That should be our narrative, right? Yes. Um, how do we begin to have a conversation about that we, right? Because 
Are, you know, we have great conversations. It's all, you know, it's all very great where they are. It's a very beautiful place, all that. Um, on, the, on the Christian thing, uh, Jesus says, you know, the Spirit of the Lord's on me because he anointed me to deal with that other we. Right? We're going to deal with that other we. And so my question to you, uh, because we, we got pretty happy life. You look like a happy guy, right? You're I am a happy, happy guy. guy. Yes. Yeah, 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 a happy guy, right? And so my question is, for the people that aren't as happy as we are, right? How do we begin to entertain the fact that all of North Philadelphia is going to be completely wiped out, right? Uh, no bowling alone there. Everyone's going to go on, right? You know, uh, I, I love Bob Putnam, you know, da-da-da. And, and, and so how can we, because this can be a very happy conversation, very warm, fuzzy, and we. And right beneath our noses are a set of circumstances which conservatives should be engaging. The conservative Christians, the devout Catholics, uh, the, you know, the black churches or the black megachurches or what. How do we begin intellectually to engage that? I mean, I can, you know, go through a thing with my autobiographical happy life and happy experiences, but it would be a shame if we... No, hear me out, and then, then you, you, you can jump in. It'd be a shame... If the challenge of Jesus, right, that Luke 418 thing, were ignored, uh, and we don't begin to deal with that. So I guess my question to you would be, so when I, when I do my bar reporting, um, where, you know, I go to a, a roadside bar and I a talk to reporting. people. I don't know what's that, that That's I sit at a bar. Okay. And what kind of bar? Uh, um, I've, I've sit at, sat at all, all sorts of bars and ask people, you know, you start by asking about the economy and then eventually they start talking about their community and, the, and their religion and their thoughts and that sort of stuff. Um, when I would try to prod into trust of community, I, I found what correlates with all the social science research is that the distrust is at the heart of actual suffering and that when you go into Appalachia and go to these places, the guy says, that, well, the reason I keep a gun in my bedside table is because of my neighbors. Okay. okay. And so that thorough distrust to the neighbor, of the neighbors undermined what some of my friends uh, mm. thought, which is, oh, well, you know, poor people in West Virginia uh, don't have money, but they sort of hang together and they go to church. And that, that was just not true at all. Um, and so when I went to, um, uh, to Charlotte, I asked some of the local sort of activists, social worker, people trying to re renovate, a, you know, revive a certain uh, segment in, in Charlotte, a 100% black neighborhood. And I said, I asked that question. I said, do you think there is high trust among neighbors? And what her answer was not at all. I, my, my grandmother trusts one next door neighbor. She trusts a family that lives around the corner, yeah. but it's not like it's some outside force that's destroying the, the neighborhood. It's not the people who are in the gangs and are, you know, the, the, they have the same problem that Appalachia has. Do you think that's true? Because Ryan mentioned the social trust, too. Do you think that in some of these uh, impoverished neighborhoods where there isn't a site of a future, that, it's, that there's that internal, interior mistrust that's really deep? And is that as big a problem as I'm saying it is in sort of white rural America? Uh, oh, absolutely. If I take you to North Philadelphia 
and we go into a bar in North Philly, right? Um, uh, and, and, you know, just to get in the bar, if we're at uh, uh, Broad and Diamond, right? Uh, the distrust factor is there, of course, right? Um, and so my question is, um, one of the things that has to be confronted for the country, right, uh, is what's happening in Appalachia. Got that. All right. And then what it is happening in the inner cities. All right. Now. And I'm asking how, how analogous, how parallel are there? We got drugs. We got right. distrust. Right. We've got violence. We've got yeah. all of that, and there's going to be differences. I think one of the places that makes things makes it slightly easier for the inner cities is that there's institutions that already exist, and so the, the churches are all closed down in Appalachia. You at least have the church. Maybe it's well, only old ladies. Uh, let, let me give you some little sociological data on that, that your, your, your church thing. Um, back and forth to Philly, uh, there is a form of residential resegregation in that. Upwardly mobile, middle-class black people don't want their house shot up or their kids shot, right? Uh, you have a tough situation where there are these black churches that were founded 60, 70 mm-hmm. years ago, all right? The neighborhood has changed dramatically, a- and they become increasingly commuter churches Yep. because the black professional class, they're going to take care of their kids. I'm not staying around in this hellhole. That's not going to happen. I've got to protect my kid. Uh, and so the black churches, you know, I, I, I'm in Philly fairly frequently. They are not equipped to engage with a new kind of actor in the inner cities. I mean, there was just a story in Philadelphia about, I mean, it's, it was it was a horror story. And this was not Appalachian white kids. It was a tough thing where they were going into all of the department stores. Now, okay, I get it if you go break into the bodega in the hood, right? So that, that, that's one thing. But Neiman Marcus, now, now we're creating some problems, right? <laughs> because, you know, that's a different bracket. They pay their taxes. I'm going to go to Neiman Market, not be accosted coming out. You know, and so there's, and, and what I'm pushing you on, there's a dynamic uh, which is racialized, right? And so, uh, and we eventually... Because uh, we could talk generally about the poor, but at some point, we're going to have to uh, engage intellectually uh, what's happening because we've got some real powder keg stuff that, you know, uh, we're not thinking about. It's not on our screen. Uh, Bob Putnam didn't catch that piece of it. And the reason it's important to me is that conservatives, conservatives, have an opportunity to undertake interventions. I mean, look, making men moral. And see, that challenge, that's an enormous amount of work. And I relate to the alienated white dudes. Now, to pick up on your, your wife, your, the white fellas, when I see working-class white males that resent me, I come in some environment, you know, as far as they're concerned, I'm looking fancy. I've got my, my two-tone shirt on like some of you folks out there, Right looking sharp, and I see the guy, and I have nothing but empathy for him. I have complete empathy for this working-class white dude that says, my life sucks, right? 
Um, and here comes this fancy black dude up in here with his fancy <laughs> glances, looking sharp, the whole thing. And as a Christian, as a Christian, for real, right, I have nothing but empathy for that, that alienated poor white male who has been neglected and told he is worse than a nigger. No, it's a very profound thing. And so what I'm saying is that there's got to be a certain conceptual refinement in our discourse on this because we have some... The, the, listen, I, I have a thing about working-class white... I, I live in Boston now. So there's a local... The Blarney Stone. All right, I go to my Blarney Stone. I go to the Blarney Stone. All the working-class Irish guys are in there, and they love Reverend Rivers. Reverend Rivers comes in there. I get my tea and coffee with my books, and I have this great dialogue with these Irish dudes, right? And they are... Black guys, you know, Reverend Rivers, right? They're looking for the respect the affirmation, and I make it a point to communicate with these men uh, that they're respected, uh, I affirm them, and when there's crazy stuff going on in the black community, right, you know, I make no excuses for it, right? And we'll sit down, I say, you know, look, I said, Greg Bruce, look, I lock them all up. I, look, you think you're a tough man. Let me put something on them, dog. bug and Pee Wee and Cornbread, they would all go to jail, right? And we would, and we would engage it. So, so I'm asking for some uh, expansion of our range on this thing because the country is in a, in a tinderbox situation. The Philly thing, where they were going through the town, tearing it up, and I could see this is not going to go well because all the business guys are going to clear out all of North Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they're going to bring the Asian students to create a whole new campus. And this is very... Uh, the conservatives, the bright guys, uh, we're the happy guys. We're the happy guys. Our life is going good, right? We can sit up and do this thing here. We have to begin to engage that. Maybe I yeah. could jump in here. And, and, um, <laughs> sorry about that. No, no, that's fine. I'm sorry, my bad. I'm no, no, sorry. You're, you're fine. Um, maybe we could just talk, bring it to kind of a practical policy level, right? We're talking about challenges sure. to making men moral. Uh, to what extent does policy help? What extent does it hurt? Where does government fit in here, right? Subsidiarity means the most local level possible. Civil society, most local local level possible. But sure. um, can government help? Does help government getting out of the way help? And where might that, that um, happen? I was actually going to make a point on that Good. following on Reverend Rivers, so I'll, I'll just jump in if that's okay. Um, yeah, I think, I think actually, not to take this from the community level to the policy-making level right. just because I'm a policy wonk, but I actually do think that one of the problems we're struggling with right now is that our public policy environment has actually stopped asking questions right. that would drive us to an answer like what you're, you're talking about. Um, when, I th when I think about the, what happened in our cities at a policy level in the 1990s, I mean, it is pretty remarkable when you think about from 1991 to 1996, you had the introduction of the very first public charter school law right. in Minnesota in 91, right. first voucher law in Milwaukee in 92, public housing reform in 92, community policing in 94, welfare reform in 96. These things weren't happening in a vacuum. They were the result of a lot of creative thinking by places like this and others right. uh, in right. response to failures of the previous 30 years of social policy starting in the mid-1960s. Right. And, um, and that policy environment started driving people into the policymaking space with a new 
set of glasses on. Right. And this kind of devolutionary impulse actually drove people off the sidelines into the cities and actually forced us to work together. Right. And um, I, th- I remember I, I mentioned Steve Goldsmith at the outset, right. and I remember asking Steve this question, you know, how do you explain, you know, in the, the mid-1990s of the 20 largest U.S. cities in America, 10 of them had Republican mayors. Right. And now right. there's two right. uh, or one now. And... And he said, you know, actually, it's not like we had this huge percentage of us uh, residing in the city. So there was a policy environment that drew reform-minded people like us into the game. Right. And, and, and when you look at the policy landscape right now in Washington, D.C., on these questions, it doesn't matter which party you're a part of right now. You're pretty much looking at top-down national solutions to a lot of these issues uh, right. when you look at the policy That's proposals right. that are out there. Yeah. And That's policy... Right. Proposals that would would require communities to take responsible responsibility for that solution and bring people together right. as part of the policy design. Right. That we've we've lost a lot of that, right. and and I think the just to make matters a, a bit a lot worse, um, it is the politicization of the religious community in the country that's also not helping us get get better in that regard. And I and I would and I would focus my comments there specifically on the political right in that right. regard. Um, that the politicization of the church and its activity over the last five to ten years has made people not even not ask those questions. It's driven people to not even care about That's asking right. them That's anymore. Right. Um, I'd recommend uh, Tim Alberta's most recent book to you and his, mm-hmm. his recent work on, on this to, to give you a better picture of what I'm, what I'm referring to. Um, and so uh, it's going to take a lot of work right. to get those people that you're, you're – talking about in sort of a prophetic way off the sidelines to be a part of the solution again. And it would seem strange that policymakers themselves could create an environment that might actually encourage at least some small percentage of them to do that. But I think it's, it's a possibility. So I, you know, my, I, I tend to think on these issues that, that you're talking about in terms of, of the other we and having a policy environment and a community that actually thinks constructively about how to engage them in the world, that, I, I think we're in a worse place than we were 20 years ago. I think when it comes to, I mean, the term legislating morality, of course, is ridiculous because when you outlaw theft and treason, you're legislating morality. But if we're to sort of get more fine board, the more local you are, the the more or the less local you are, the less prudent it is to pass these laws. And so the more local you are, the are I'm totally convinced I used to be more libertarian and say things like you have no right to stop to, you know, consenting adults from engaging in and all I, you know, I've grown up enough to and, and read enough Robbie George to stop believing that. Um, <laughs> but I so when the libertarian uh, one libertarian frame that is occasionally useful is uh, government is essentially violence or the threat of violence. Right. Like if you don't pay your taxes, somebody shows up with a gun and hauls you off to jail. Right. And so one way I look at it is, in what regard, if you go to more of a state of nature, when would, we be re- uh, when would we be okay to get together and threaten to beat the crap out of somebody? And, and, and that's a, a good trigger for local action. So if somebody in our neighborhood started selling porn from his bodega, we would go and be like, we're going to burn this stuff now, and if you try to do it again, we're going to beat the crap out of you or break your window. Like, that would actually be the right moral thing to do. So on a local level, to ban... Uh, the sale of pornography in your downtown, that's the sort of policy that I, I think is part of rebuilding community 
and making men moral. Um, if Congress were to pass some bill uh, addressing this, I'd have a lot more problems because of the prudential concerns of what happens when the federal government tries to do that. And then there's just a million other things. I mean, the, like just pave sidewalks and 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 build parks and and all of that stuff. That's ultimately going to be a, a governmental responsibility. Where I moved out of in Maryland, the roads were four lanes in each direction. We, we had to buy a house backing up to a public school so that my kids could walk somewhere because if it involved crossing a street, it involved risking their lives because they didn't build things for humans. They uh, built things for cars. And so that's not a small thing. The community cohesion, mm-hmm. the walkability, the right. ability of parents to have more than one kid because they don't have to drive them anywhere, right. that's all local policy stuff, and it, and it ties into this. And it is a sort, another sort of thing that conservatives have uh, – have ignored. Walkability is is not, you know, that's usually something libs talk about, but it's it's definitely part of making men moral, I think. Could you, Tim, maybe talk a bit more about, I think, the, the importance of the church in this conversation has come up a few times. Maybe you could talk a bit about what your research has found in terms of people, you know, religious disaffiliation. Is there any hope in that regard, or is it getting worse? Yeah, I mean, I think the Tim Alberta book, I just read the excerpt in The Atlantic, and it looks like a, a really good book and a really sad story. Because when you first asked about policy, one of the things I was going to say is we, we yesterday talked about religious liberty and sort of in the, the, the Gorsuch era of the court, he's been a leader on this, and it's great. You know, the what state was it that was trying to deny government mulch to a playground because it was owned by uh, Lutherans? Uh, yeah. And so uh, you can't uh, – separation of, of – of church and mulch, um, <laughs> and and we're winning on all of those things. And some states like Florida and increasingly Texas is moving in this direction. They're trying to devolve the safety net to the local level and allow religious organizations to do it. I think that's an absolutely necessary thing to do. And one of the things that I believe, and I've seen research hinting at this, but it hasn't proven it, but that the um, when churches are less involved in helping the poor, that hurts their attendance. One of the reasons we go to church is that's our opportunity to clothe the hungry and uh, well, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, etc. And so I think that one cause of church uh, disaffiliation is the crowding out by the central state. There's multiple studies that have, have pointed in that direction. And another tr- cause is um, their abandonment of their unique role, which is... <laughs> not about politics. I mean, the politicization of the American church, uh, Christian white evangelicals, is uh, it's devastating both to them serving their purpose and to their the acceptance. When I say the church should be a central part of the public square, right. and I mean, in Philadelphia, sometimes they, the city government has kicked out soup kitchens for taking up too much space on the sidewalks or for, you know, uh, or, or refuse to give money to religious organizations or force them to, uh, you know, abide by all of their non-discrimination rules, which include ones that are unjust. Um, but on the other hand, if, when, if your vision of the church is these people who are basically sort of right-wing gun-toters, right. you're not going to be open to them getting public money or being part of the public square. Yeah, the, the church piece... I think there is a very smart strategic opportunity for a re-engagement on the question of the church. Um, you're correct, right? You, you've got, you know, your, your MAGA stuff, right? You've got your MAGA stuff. Got it. Understood. Right. Um, there should be, on the part of conservatives, uh, re-engagement with the black church 
as a community. Uh, 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 you know, uh, John DiUlio had put together Prux and the stuff that was at Penn, right? Um, uh, AI could initiate some evidence-based, empirical stuff to look at how do we objectively measure service provision and do some serious empirical social science on this. If there's a strategic opportunity, the country's nuts, right? So uh, let's focus on how uh, we could strengthen the concept of subsidiarity, right? Um, Catholic deal, uh, and apply it to uh, black churches, right? Um, that's, that would be very, very important, just theologically. For me, and it's actually a relevant point, um, I am a student and in some sense a son of Catholic social teaching. And this has been true for over 40 years, right? Um, uh, Fides e Racho, that's my dude, right? I'm, I'm, I said, <laughs> okay, that is my man, right? You know, look, Catholic social teaching, uh, their basic philosophical stuff is absolutely essential. And, and uh, get this, I'm circulating this stuff. Uh, 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 Professor George uh, writes a book called Embryo, right? Uh, uh, he, he helps me out, and I get like maybe 15, 20 copies of Embryo. This is Robert George now, our man here, right? Um, the people who almost stole every copy I had of Embryo were black Pentecostal preachers out of the Church of God in Christ. They grabbed up the George thing, and then you're... Uh, 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 what, what's, the, what's the competing um, what's your uh, the apologetics I'm just it's flying out of my mind uh, competing orthodoxies no 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 class of orthodoxies right yeah right uh, they would pick this stuff up and study it most people didn't even know that there was a black Pentecostal market for Catholic social teaching they don't make a lot of noise about it they're, they're not you know these folk do this. Bishop Charles Blake brought an entire delegation of the general board of the Church of God in Christ to the, uh, uh, the Catholics. What, what's your Pentagon? The US, USCB? Uh, give it to me again, dear. Is that three C's? Two C's, right? All right. Okay. I'm trying to keep up with you folks. Right? And, so, and so what happens? Now, get this. Uh, an entire delegation come to the USCCB, right? And they spend an entire day at their own expense uh, learning about Catholic social teaching. Most folks don't even know that. You know. And so there has been this engagement, unbeknownst to most people. Uh, you know, uh, Professor George, uh, the class of orthodoxies, yeah, I, I, I ordered a box of these things and I passed them out to the general board. I mean, there is a level of philosophic and intellectual engagement that is way above uh, the radar uh, that exists where the most thoughtful elements of the black church, which ironically, right, are the Pentecostal charismatic folks, right, that are engaging. And we need to have, uh, uh, listen, uh, Professor George will tell you, uh, we brought, the Seymour Institute brought a delegation of black Pentecostal preachers from across the country. And we came to Princeton, and they wanted they wanted to hear Professor George, right? Professor George comes in, he tells 
Uh, you know, you know, uh, I'm, uh, I'm not even exactly sure what the, the topic was, but it was some theological or philosophic point. He's getting up there. They get into a discussion where Professor George talks to these preachers, right, room full of these folk at Princeton, about a, an evangelist, uh, uh, R.W. Schombach. Now, I have $100 for anybody in here who knows who R.W. Schombach is, except Robbie. <laughs> I'm going to keep my money, okay? <laughs> right. Now, he began to say, when I was a kid, I used to listen on the radio, R.W. Schombach. The entire house, the classroom went up. They stood on their feet, and Brian had no idea what's going on. What, 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 what is all this, right? There was a, a connection made. We've got uh, Making Men, Professor Making Men Moral over here. Right. And Mr. Embryo. Right. Who's engaging in a dialogue which was inconceivable. And most of you folk in here, you could not imagine a black Pentecostal guys. Right. Embryo making. There is an opportunity for a level of intellectual engagement. Right. uh, To deal with some of the polarization that exists. And, And it's been happening. Right. I mean, the thing with Professor George to this day. Uh, a Church of God in Christ love Professor George, right? Um, no pretense, not looking for anything. Uh, they love the book, right? Uh, rivers, rivers. Oh, yeah, man, uh, Professor George, you got anything new coming out? Right? <laughs> no. no, and this exists, right? And, and, and my point is, on the church stuff, the think tanks have an opportunity to initiate some strategic partnerships that are unprecedented since, and basically, Professor Diulio got this thing cooking. Uh, when he went and met with all these black pastors across the country, brought them into the White House, and it was absolutely quite extraordinary. I'll just toss out one last topic. We have a, a few minutes before we'll start Q&A. We haven't really talked about marriage, family, which are the, you know, the, the foundation of civil society. Um, I guess that's kind of a softball for Tim, but anybody want to want to hop in on that? Uh, marriage, marriage is good for it. Um, <laughs> Tell us something we don't know. <laughs> the uh, good. no, so the, I mean, a retreat from marriage is a is a, one of the worst symptoms of the collapse of of local community. Um, I think another, it's also caused by our disordered love of sort of autonomy and hyper-individualism. That's uh, the pervasive philosophy of the day. Uh, You can find an anti-marriage, pro-divorce op-ed in the New York Times almost monthly. I think they have a slot for it. One uh, was called What Marriage Asks Us to Give Up. And the answer was basically the ability to do whatever you want whenever you want. And the woman explains how she thinks everybody... Who, who even people who don't get divorced should sign these 50-50 agreements that she has with her husband because they no longer have to haggle or negotiate over everything. And now that she's divorced, she's happy because there are no socks on the floor. And it's just this, um, this idea that our lives, that sacrificing for others, being inconvenienced for others, having a duty to care for others um, is, uh, is trauma. And so part of the, I, in Alienated America, my argument was that, you know, we're getting married less because marriage involves community support. It involves belonging to things where you can meet people. Um, but I also think there's an underlying uh, philosophical thing there that our, our autonomy worshiping hyper individualistic mindset um, is, is not the right environment for marriage because marriage involves 
is self-sacrifice. One of the stories I tell in Family Unfriendly is um, the, all the stuff was coming to my house because that's where uh, the wedding gifts, that's where uh, my wife, we were going to live once we got married. And so we're, during the engagement, this stuff is coming. And we had, all, we had registered for all these gifts, right? Now, you all know that we is a lie there. I had almost zero input on what we <laughs> registered for. And so I was like, I'm going to start unpacking this stuff. It's about 10 days before our wedding. I open a box, and I pull out the drinking glasses from Crate and Barrel, and I just shout. And my brother, who was my roommate, had already moved out, so I'm the only person in the house. And I remember shouting, I don't want to drink out of square glasses. For some reason, <laughs> the drinking glasses that my wife had ordered, the, the top was square. If you know anything about, like... Water physics or the shape of human mouths, it doesn't work, okay? And I got so upset, but I was luckily alone in my room and I just, in my living room, and I just thought, I guess this is what marriage is gonna be. Like, I, I get to be married to this woman and we're gonna start a family and it's great, but I just have to drink out of square glasses. And th but that idea, that sacrificing, laying down autonomy for others, that's, that's kind of, uh, uh, day class A today, and I think that is really hard for people to develop morally without um, other people for whom to, to sacrifice. I want to pick up on the marriage thing and, and the black thing. The Moynihan Report, uh, all of the stuff that was done around marriage, and um, quiet as it's kept, there's actually an opportunity to reassert the primacy and the virtue of marriage using the least likely case study, the black community. There's an actual strategic opportunity. The stuff that, uh, the work that Professor George has done uh, around marriage, um, there is, ladies and gentlemen, an opportunity to articulate the defense of marriage. Uh, in my neighborhood, uh, my wife and I made a decision uh, to go live and work among the poor. So Harvard, neighborhood among the poor. Uh, I am revered by thugs. Uh, and my wife, Dr. Rivers, is Mother Rivers, right? And the existence of a black couple in the hood who models this thing, our children were raised there, uh, 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 Reverend Rivers, you know, just Reverend Rivers and Dr. Rivers. There's an opportunity for the reintroduction. And, and here again, the, I, it, it, the, the Catholic community should have a conversation at some level to talk about what are the most strategically uh, provocative and innovative. In other words, for the marriage issue to win... There's got to be, and I've had this conversation with John and Robbie, there's got to be triangulation. The enemies of marriage and all other creative forms of deviance need to be in a total face-off with the black church. In other words, and, and, and this is just being smart, right? Yeah, we have to, if you want to win, because uh, there must be... Uh, a intellectual, philosophic, and political movement that sanctions marriage, uh, and the and the the leaders of the fight, the public the communication fight, have to be uh, the leaders of the black church taking on all the trans stuff, the whole nine yards, and 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 what you do, you racialize 
this issue and the interface is with the black churches versus whatever that trans thing is because it changes every couple of hours, right? <laughs> whatever that thing is because you folks, God bless you, you're not the ones that carry that ball because they're going to have a field day because of how they politicize the business. And so there has to be a decision. Okay, do we want to win the fight? And what's the smartest way to do that? Yeah. We, we better turn to, to Q&A now. We have about 15 minutes. So anyone, I think there should be a microphone out there. Or we can just call it out. But oh, I'll wait for the, the mic to get rolling. Um, I'm done. All righty. I think I saw one. Did you have a question? Yes, right here in the, the floral jacket. Well, I, I'd like to say as a, uh, <clears throat> one of the problems, I think, with what I'm hearing today is that um, you don't recognize the damage that, to communities that nonprofits can do and that social science can do. And when I read Robbie's book, I thought that was a nice world in 1993, but there are the damage that's been done by harm reduction or housing first and that kind of thing, and also the damage that the religious freedom in, uh, movement can do. For example, in our town, again, and I'm from Oregon, but in the little town of Brookings, a church wants to have a, a I think it's a Catholic Episcopal church, is feeding the, the country and so forth, and they're saying, well, we've done this for 25 years, but it's a pop, the population of the homeless is a, di- is a different homeless group. They're different right. sociological and demographic Problems and also the fact that the city council is at least elected. Uh, the voters of Brookings have some power over that. They don't have power to def- to uh, fight against the Alliance for Defending Freedom, say, or 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 a Princeton University professor, famous intellectual, or or Brookings institution. It's just frustrating to me that 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 could you address the tensions between and also, Mr. Carney? I mean, that's fine that everything's great, but you're also imposing your Catholic views on. Say, if you're feeding the hungry in your church, that's fine. But in a park where you're attracting people from outside the neighborhood, that's not okay. And I, that, I mean, I, I think you're pointing to a, a real big tension, and um, it's going to be a tension. Uh, there's nothing I have to say to, to resolve it except that, yeah, you cannot democratize my church. You cannot democratize what, uh, what civil society is going to do. That's one of the beauties of it. It is a little bit undemocratic. And Tocqueville and... Uh, Yuval, who runs uh, social, cultural, and constitutional studies, where I'm a, a scholar sitting in the back making sure that I mention Tocqueville at least once, <laughs> otherwise I get fired. Uh, Tocqueville pointed out that there is something about America, democracy, and our love of equality that um, will corrode civil society precisely because there's something undemocratic about letting people run their own things with their own rules and maybe not letting everybody in, that you get to vote on uh, for the people who pave the roads and, and build the playgrounds, and you don't get to vote for the people who might um, operate the bowling league because that might be private property and, and the nonprofits. And so do sometimes these groups harm the, the, the general good? Yeah, but you know what? Um, it would be a terrible situation in which every institution of civil society was democratized and that the way that they were in what they did was controlled by the public. How, there has to be people who can do stuff and you, the the neighbor, don't get to tell them how to do it because otherwise, uh, yeah, we won't have civil society. So what's the harm of general good? You th- what's that mean? Well, I mean, if, if you're... Well, 
I guess you could say moron. You think? Well, no, the, but you, you're the one that used the phrase. That's I, I'm I, I was saying the public good. It was the what I meant good. to say. The public good at times can be undermined by a sort of misbehaving oh, uh, that's private different. entity. Oh, okay. But I think I that any effort to control that and and rope that in and to control the civil society square is going to do a lot more harm. It's going to be imposing the will of the ruling class on um, on these institutions of, of civil society. It's by the ruling class in every small community. It's the lawyers and the doctors who usually are the president of the nonprofit. It's not, it's, I mean, it's a very elite organization, almost always. And Well, I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of diversity within the nonprofit sector. And yeah. I think one of the problems right. Um, right. that right. we see, and I think that you might be observing or pointing to in a lot of our cities around the country anyway, is when national politics basically becomes very local uh, through through those organizations. Right. And right. when you have That's local right. organizations essentially uh, trying to impose, maybe through outside forces or maybe through national organizations, kind of a very narrow ideological view of the world on the community. The homelessness issue is a really good example of that in some of our more progressive cities around the country. Right. And again, that, that, that requires a lot of creativity and policy design so that you really take, take the, the best of the pluralism, actually, at the local level of these different communities where they can actually solve problems in a way that fits, fits them. Our, our policy should actually take that into consideration. And for those who are involved in, in local politics and policymaking, it's also worth just taking stock of the kind of community that you live in. Because <clears throat> I think there's some interesting studies that, um, that show when you have you know, overly powerful mayors and at-large uh, candidates in your council, uh, you often get ideological policymaking at the local level. And when you have uh, fewer at-large members and you have a strong council manager system, for instance. This sound, might sound kind of technocratic. Actually, there's all these checks and balances uh, that, are, that are at play there. Um, it's why a place like Austin, Texas, where I've gone back to, to live, could pivot and deal with its homelessness problem in a way that you haven't seen in places like sure. San Francisco and Portland because they actually have a constitutional arrangement there that actually makes it easier for people to stand up and actually make a, make a difference. And so, um, so I think the, the nationalization of our politics at the local level is a threat in all kinds of different ways. And, 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 and especially at the church level is where because it should be Because ideology seeps in and yeah. overwhelms practicality. Yeah, and, and, and abstract ideology has been a fuel for the passions always and for a long time. I mean, I, earliest account of this I could find is David Hume in like 1742 talking about parties of principle. And he, meant, he didn't mean principled parties. He meant, he meant political parties that are based on so what we might call abstract ideologies. When they... People, people will march on the mall for abstract ideologies, but they won't march on City Hall to, to you know, fix the potholes. Yeah. And, um, and, and when we make our local organizations sort of voice boxes for those national ideologies, we yeah. really risk, risk right. a lot of harm. Oh, yeah. Um, it, yeah. Robbie. <clears throat> uh, ju- just to come back to Hope's point to get our finger on the, on the tension, I think what she has in mind is something like this. <clears throat> Let's say you have a church, um, and it wants to do an outreach uh, to people in some sort of need. Let's say people who are suffering from addictions. So they provide the service, perhaps using uh, a public park for the provision of the service. Now, that will have the effect of drawing in people who are suffering from those addictions, people who have that need, into the community. And there will be negative externalities for the community as a result of that happening. 
Now, you notice that that tends not to happen in uh, communities where the homes are a million dollars in value and more. Mm-hmm. They tend to happen in communities where working class and right. middle class That's people right. live. That's right. And so that, of course, raises the, the, the question, why should working class and middle class communities be suffering those externalities, especially if wealthier people aren't subjected to them? And, you know, those of us who are in, in the business of defending religious freedom will be the first to say, look, that park needs to be available to that church to provide those right. services. Right. So that's, and that's good, right? We do, we do want those services to be provided. Those people are in need. Right. And the park provides a very good place for that to happen. But I think we do need to be aware that we're imposing a cost. Have I got you right, Hope? We're imposing a cost on somebody else. Right. Well, I'm also not demanding morality of the people that you're supposedly serving. I mean, you're saying there's a sanctimonious aspect to the to the, the Catholic, like it's exactly happening in Chinchimi Park in Corvallis, Oregon. The Catholic Church had set up a feeding program, and if you if you protest against that or just say this is maybe not the best thing for this park for these children in this neighborhood, that you're evil, and that's that it's it's frustrating that that you can't have a dialogue. Well, I so the the tension here and like the, the subconscious thought that's going in the back of my mind here is, on the one hand, yeah, if there's a park where you want your your kids to play or you want to be able to you know nicely read a book and um, all of a sudden you have to worry because there's some guy screaming at the, at the top of his head because his uh, mental illness and that he's drawn there by this program that then, yeah, somebody's kind of ruining your park. And at the same time, yeah, I'm going to try to say this in as unsanctimonious way as possible. <laughs> um, uh, Jesus doesn't want us to be free from people who are suffering <laughs> from poor, hungry I mean, when I remember when I first read the Bible and I wasn't a Catholic yet and he was describing poor people, I was always picturing the, the uh, white mom from the Great Depression with her little kids yeah, yeah. and they're all just a little bit dirty, but I was like, I can tell that they're totally morally upstanding people. And then I moved to Capitol Hill and I'm coming into the church and the homeless people were all really annoying. They were yeah. loud. They yeah. looked dirty. Yeah. I didn't want to shake their hands. Right. Um, <laughs> and so it's as, – as a parent, I, I absolutely see like, no, I want my playground to not have people who could be a threat or are going to leave needles lying around. And then as a Christian, I think, okay, but at some point uh, I'm definitely being unchristian uh, by saying, I, can I just cut a check and, let, and that take care of my – Why is it unchristian? To not want to be um, uh, surrounded by that. I mean, the the a shepherd should smell like sheep. Was is the line that our so, our so likes Alice, to you're say. unchristian if you don't want to be about a bunch of crackheads. That Obviously, that's to... not true. But at some point, I'm saying that the, the the tension in that reaction is that it's hard to say. It's hard to draw the line of when does the unsavory wanting to be uh, free from the unsavory people cross the line of this is. Uh, protecting my kids or this is just like uh, law and order and become I what, what okay. you were talking about earlier is here's, I here's a policy question I, I started. Uh, is there a way for the costs to be 
and I, I don't just mean the financial costs. Yeah. The, the, the burden that attaches to the good of providing these right. services for people genuinely in need. Yeah. Is there a way to allocate more fairly those costs, to allocate those burdens? I mean, it's not right, right. That's right. That, that working class and middle class people That's have to pay the costs when wealthy people can cut the check. That's right. No. Mayor, just on that, 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 what Professor George says is really true. Look, um, I live and work around the poor. These, these are my folks. Now, I, I draw lines real, real clearly, right? I live in my house. I live in a neighborhood. Everybody knows me. I know everybody. And some crackheads will come around, right? Now, uh, my wife will come out to do her flowers or in the lawn, and then some crackheads come by. Now, if my man says something inappropriate, uh, the Jesus is me going to say, you're my man. We're going to have a problem in a minute, right? Now, my wife's over here minding the business, and Jesus is not going to be happy with this in a minute, all right? And I'm, I'm going to come see you. And I'm going to take what was done in the temple out of the temple and I'm going to put it on you because we're not going to have any foolishness. And, and the point is, there is a legitimate way. And I, I see, no, I'm not white, so I'm not feeling guilty if I tell Kareem, <laughs> right, if I tell Kareem, you're my man. We're not going to have that noise here. Now, don't make me have to come out here. So, and I love you, right? I love you. And I got a baseball bat right next to the front door. So and I'm going to pray and ask Jesus to anoint me if you come in here with some foolishness. And I'm not that guy, man. And I'm not white. I'm not guilty. You're not going to put no violins on me and make me start crying. You know, my man, look, here's, here's $5. I better not see you again. And I don't want you upsetting my wife. Now, that's, that's you know, um, that's the proper thing. We're talking about marriage, right? That's the proper thing that the husband does to protect the wife, right? And to protect the family, right? No, no guilt. No, no, we ain't doing that. I'm a black dude. I'm not, you know, I got no, you know, you, you know, I love my, look, I, you know, my wife, she's going to go in her garden and I'm going to tell my man, your fella, man, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm healthy. Take the three, four, five dollars. Go do what you're going to do, and I don't want to see you around here again. Now, I'll see that same individual four blocks away on Dorchester Avenue, and he gives me some, you know, cock and bull story. I'll take him in the Blarney Stone, which is some little local place that I go to have my coffee and read my books, and I'll say, sit down, man. I'm going to get you that, but I'm not that dude, right? And I'm saying there's no, we don't have to be feeling foolish and guilty Right. Uh, uh, you maintain order. I love everybody and I'm not taking any foolishness, foolishness, foolishness off anyone. Right. And all the young men understand that. Right. In the neighborhood, all the little crackhead and all them dudes. Here come Reverend. Let's 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 chill because I know he's got that baseball bat at the near the front of his door. All right, we are out of time. So please, <laughs> on that on note, note. join me. Thank you on that all. note. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> 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 it's a great way to end. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Thank you for listening to Ordain and Establish, a podcast of lectures and discussions produced by the Project on Constitutional Originalism and the Catholic Intellectual Tradition at the Catholic University of America's Columbus School of Law. To learn more, visit our website at cit.catholic.edu.